This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 1. This season highlights the stories of immigrants and refugees from all around the world, as well as some organizations that work with and for these beautiful people. Today I am visiting with my new friend, Josh Stallings, from the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition, where he works as the regional organizer for Northern Colorado. CERC is a statewide membership-based coalition that was founded in 2002. It encompasses all types of organizations, from immigrant to business and faith to labor, basically any organization that wants to ally itself with their mission. Their goal is to improve the lives of immigrants and refugees by making Colorado a more welcoming, immigrant-friendly state. Thank you, CERC. They actively achieve this mission through nonpartisan, civic engagement, public education, as well as working as advocates for fair and humane immigration policies. Josh is personally engaged in ending ICE notifications, informing immigrants of their rights, increasing access to legal and community resources, and empowering movement leaders. I don't know how he found time amidst all that to sit and talk with me, but he did. He is a gentle, wise, old soul in the body of a young man. But don't let that fool you. His passion for his job and his helping of the immigrant community is nonstop, as you are about to learn during this wonderful conversation. Good morning, Josh. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me and explain what Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition does. And uh, I'm just glad to have this time to visit with you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Corey. We're going to talk about a lot of deep things and serious things. So I want to start off a little bit light and I want to ask you who your favorite superhero is and why. Yeah, I may sound a little unpopular saying this, but I don't necessarily have like a, a favorite superhero in the typical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I grew up just north of San Antonio, Texas. And so I think probably my superheroes growing up were the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA yeah. basketball team. That's great. Um, yeah, I was just a huge fan growing up. Like when I was nine and 10 years old, like I would sit in front of the TV and watch ESPN every morning. I watched every single Spurs game, wear a shirt every single day they played, you know, all 82 games plus the playoffs. Um, and so I particularly just loved David Robinson. And then after he retired, Manu Ginobili. And I don't know, I guess those guys just had a lot of character and they were skilled athletes. And it was always a very much a team atmosphere. Um, and I think, you know, at the time, like, I believe the Spurs were best and everyone else, you know, wasn't as good and they were my superheroes. (laughs) That is super cool. That's an awesome answer, actually. I hadn't thought of it in that direction, but I could easily say the same thing. I was like that with Michael Jordan back in, you know, a few years prior to that. So uh, I think that's a great way to think outside of the box about what a superhero is. Good for you. (laughs) Thanks, Corey. Can you give us a brief description of the type of organization that Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition is and what your role is with it. Yeah, so the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition is a statewide organization and it's a coalition which I guess means that it's made up of other organizations. So throughout the state, we have about 90 different organizations. 
that are members of our coalition. Um, and so our coalition provides some services for the community, like we'll have um, free legal workshops to help people apply for citizenship, to renew their DACA, um, renew their green card, that kind Great. of thing. Um, we also do some support with like helping people get driver's licenses if they don't, if they aren't permanent residents. So they're either undocumented or have like temporary status in Colorado. Um, then we do like a lot of education um, and just like general, like, I guess, leadership development. So mm -hmm. uh, most, well, out of our 90 organizations, some organizations are um, all immigrants, some are allies, some are a mixture. And within those organizations, like we have labor unions, faith communities, um, victims advocate groups, um, grassroots immigrant organizations. Like we have all kinds of different nonprofits and just other less formal groups that are part of our membership. Um, so we'll do different trainings with them just on um, organizations and raising money and public speaking, like all kinds of, I guess, little things. Um, and then I also do a lot of like know your rights training. So this sounds like a fantastic organization. I love that it's bringing in smaller organizations. It's the coalition of a bunch of smaller organizations where there's strength in numbers, right? Exactly. And that's actually probably like the biggest or one of the biggest pieces of what we do too, is that where we do a lot of advocacy around making sure that Colorado has laws and policies that um, I guess protect and serve um, immigrants and refugees. Mm -hmm. um, and so every year, all of our different member organizations get to give their input on like what is most important and pressing at this time. Um, you know, what kind of laws would we like to see implemented in the state of Colorado at this point in time? And so um, then I get to do the work of helping implement those things. I love that. I was actually just looking at your website prior to our interview and noticed that there were several initiatives that actually were turned into law um, from 2016. Would you like to explain the uh, victory that those were? So one of our, one of the first really big victories is in 2006, the state of Colorado passed um, Senate Bill 90, which was uh, what we call like a, a show me your papers law, which uh -huh. basically meant that um, police officers and law enforcement could um, stop people and um, detain them on the sole basis of their immigration status. So we, you know, we're really against that law because people in the community that were undocumented can no longer um, trust law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, it, yeah, it basically gave like law enforcement the power to be ICE. Um, and so a lot of people lived in even more fear than are already living in. And so we were able to repeal that law um, in 2013. Um, that same year, there's a really cool law called ACID that was passed that made sure that undocumented students that went to high school in Colorado who grew up here um, get in-state tuition rather than paying out of state. Excellent. Um, we passed SB 251 driver's licenses, which is a license for anyone who's undocumented or has temporary residency in Colorado to get. So that includes people that have DACA or TPS or um, maybe even like an H-2A worker visa. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. And then I guess the last thing is um, finally in 2019, um, we passed, well, it definitely joined up you know, with other partners, but um, there was a bill or a law, sorry, that was passed that made it so that sheriffs couldn't detain people for ICE to come get them. Um, 
because before that, you know, sheriffs were detaining people, um, even if they didn't have a charge or conviction for ICE to come grab them. So I would feel much more at ease knowing that there are a bunch of people on my side. They want to see me do well. I mean, it's scary enough being uh, an immigrant, never mind an undocumented immigrant in the United States, and not knowing who you can trust. It's really nice to know there are a lot of people out there who are advocating for you and who are trying to empower you as well. Yeah, and that's that's really like a central tenet of what we do too, is making sure that the people that are impacted by the policies and the laws have their voice front and center and are guiding the direction that we take. Um, you know, because we really we want this to be like an experience that gives them, I guess, leadership and a voice and power in our system too. I cannot even say enough good about that. I've been reading lots of books lately about how it's so important for the people who are more of the oppressed or the marginalized to be the ones leading the cause, as we've seen with several examples right now in the United States, right? Um, But I love that. I love that that's what you guys are enforcing, what your mission is, and you're trying to help raise up the people who are going to be the ones leading the charge, it sounds like. Yeah, I think in it, the one thing that I would highlight with CERC in addition to, you know, the great laws that we've either passed or the uh, negative laws that we've been a part of repealing is that, you know, this coalition, I think more than anything, gives people that are undocumented and whose first language, you know, wasn't English, a space where they feel accepted and feel welcomed. Um, a lot of my friends over the years that have DACA or are undocumented have talked about how growing up, um, like just how devastating it was when they learned they were undocumented mm. and how they always struggled feeling, you know, like an outsider and, you know, not being accepted in some ways by our society. And so to have this space where these leaders from around the state can come together and like be accepted and be celebrated and then also like you know be given a space to really use their voice and um, step into their own leadership and their own power um, is really special and goes beyond anything else that we can measure. So Josh how did you come to get involved with CERC? Had you always wanted to work with immigrants? Uh, Can you explain what your educational and career background is that led you to this role? Yeah um, I might take a little bit longer on this question if that's okay. Please do. Okay. Um, so I grew up in, in Texas, um, right between San Antonio and Austin, had a really awesome, you know, middle class, upper middle class, like upbringing, um, you know, played sports with some boy scouts, um, good student, like all around, I guess, considered a good kid, um, by most, uh, you know, society and, um, have amazing parents and family. Um, awesome. Yeah. So I, and I also grew up in the church too. That was huge in my life. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know, you know, growing up, I didn't necessarily think I was going to work with immigrants. Right. But by the time I was in middle school, I participated in this thing at my church called the 30 hour famine with world vision. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar Uh, with that. Yeah. So we fasted for 30 hours and learned about world hunger. And my mind was just blown that like people could have such vastly different circumstances than me. And um, I don't know. At that point in time, I guess I knew that I wanted to do something of service and was thinking maybe like mission work or international humanitarian aid work. Um, and I knew I wanted to live abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, I ended up going 
ended up going to college here in Colorado. And um, I didn't study abroad because I was running cross country in college and like really wanted to compete. But as soon as I graduated, um, I did a year long service program through the Lutheran church. You know, it's kind of like um, Peace Corps, but with like a, a faith lens to it. And so I lived in central Mexico, um, two hours east of Mexico City. Um, for the year after college, um, I lived with this really amazing family. Um, from day one, they took me in as their own. So like, what an experience. Yeah. <laughs> so my host mom, um, Oliva, from day one, she's calling me hijo. Aww. And Nino Josh. Um, <laughs> I love it. That's great. What a way to feel included, right? Yeah. And so I was, I was a part of the family for the entire year, right? Like, they would take me to see like local pyramids um, as a part of every birthday party or mm. baptism or celebration that we had. Um, my, uh, my tios or my Mexican uncles, you know, were always like trying to egg me on to try tequila with them. And sure they were. <laughs> the thing I love about the Mexican culture specifically is how many fiestas they have, the, all the different holidays, the reasons to celebrate. I love that about that culture. Did you find yeah. that to be true? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we are celebrating all the time. And just like, it was just so, I, I was a very shy kid growing up. Uh, very like focused on sports and academics and not super social. Um, and so, you know, being thrown into the heart of Mexico with a very extroverted, loud Mexican family was <laughs> really good for me. It really shook me up. Wow. What a way to get you out of your comfort zone, huh? Yeah. And we, you know, one of the things I love about the way of life, there's just like how close knit family is. So the house that I lived in with Mama Oliva was the house that, like she and her siblings had grown up in. And so her brothers and sisters lived nearby in their own houses, but almost every day they would come over after work and like have dinner together and we would all just chat and, you know, for a couple of hours. That's so different from American culture, but it's such a beautiful thing. I love that. I kind of am envious of that. Yeah. So that was my year in Mexico um, living with them, but I also worked in a shelter during that year for people that were migrating and mm -hmm. so the shelter was located right along these train tracks that are often referred to as La Bestia or mm -hmm. the Beast. And so um, folks from Central America that are migrating, um, especially from the Northern Triangle, which is Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, um, if they don't have you know, money to like pay for, I don't know, a more upscale coyote, if that's a a thing, mm -hmm. you know, what they'll end up doing is they'll walk through Mexico and also like ride mm -hmm. these cargo trains. And so our shelters are located right along the train route that people would take between Veracruz and Deafe or this uh, Mexico city. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so they would stop off in our shelter for a day or two at a time to get food, to take a shower, um, to get their, you know, feet off the ground for a little bit. And honestly, like before this, I knew next to nothing about immigration, even though I grew up in South Central Texas. Really? I, wow. Yeah, and I thought like, you know, when I was told that I was going to be working in the shelter, I was like, oh, that's like kind of controversial. Like I know that immigration is like hot topic item, but I really hadn't, you know, I, was, I had no idea what I was really getting into. Um, and so that year was like fascinating that 
I like learned about this issue like firsthand by talking to the people that were migrating and hearing why they left their country, all the like injustices and abuses they faced during the journey. And I met people that had lived in the United States, um, both in, you know, San Antonio area, as well as um, my college town of Lakewood, Colorado, uh-huh. and who had then been deported and were trying to make it back to be reunited with their family. What a great education. That must have made it sink in even deeper than had it just been um, going to a class and hearing about it. You had real life education. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I did get a, a college degree or bachelor's in um, global studies, but you know, really this experience in Mexico is what I think shaped me and educated me more than anything. For sure. It sounds like it. So you had that year of understanding the culture. You understood the language. When you understand a language, you better understand a culture and you have, or you at least have more of an appreciation for it. Oh, wow. I'm really impressed by that. So obviously that spoke into your life so much that you decided to go into that line of work afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. So when I came back to the U.S., um, which was July of 2016, so um, which was a very interesting time to come back to the U.S., right? Because we were leading up to the 2016 elections. Yeah. Um, I just saw our society with like a completely different lens, right? Like I, at first I thought I was going to settle in San Antonio to be closer to family, but then I was like really drawn to come back to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And one of my like initial concerns was, oh, like Colorado is a very monogamous, like white state. Like I'd love to be around more, um, lat, you know, Latin or Latinx culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got back, I was like, oh my gosh, there's, I didn't realize how, how segregated we are, like, and how much of a bubble I'd lived in before mm-hmm. where all the spaces I lived in in college were very white. Um, but I just started like seeing things I'd never seen and like meeting people I never met and realizing that we have these huge pockets and areas of our state that have, you know, a large immigrant population and a large Spanish speaking population. I don't know. So yeah, I started volunteering with some organizations in Denver, including the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition, mm-hmm. and the Metro Denver Sanctuary Coalition. And so as I met people who not only were like, you know, I'd spend most of my time working with people that were migrating to the U.S. up until then, but then I started meeting people here who had been here for decades and who would do anything they could to become citizen citizens, but there wasn't, you know, a pathway for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've learned about their experiences and spent a lot of time just like listening and reflecting and thinking, what is my role in all of this as a, a white man? And how can I, how can I help without doing harm? Um, and yeah, I, I don't know that that was really shaping to those few years after that time in Mexico. I absolutely love how you describe that as you didn't see the people around you because of how you were living in the bubble and how all of us really do. We don't, we don't know what we don't know. We're so used to what we live in. We think that's normal and we have to get outside of that in order to see a different reality, somebody else's reality. I love how you explained that. And when you just stop and look, it's all around you, isn't it? And now you probably see it everywhere, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I really, really love your story and love your heart and how you came to this position, how you came to work with Cirque. And um, it seems like it comes from a life 
of service from the get-go. You've always wanted to serve. And I think Cirque kind of found you because of your service, didn't they? Maybe. I mean, Maybe. I, feel, I feel so lucky to be here. Um, I mean, this is, this is definitely a dream job for me. So the feeling is mutual. You had just mentioned that you have been around a lot of people and some of your friends who found out that they were undocumented and were devastated by it. How do you help them? How do you be an ally with them? How do you show how bad you feel and what can you do? I think sometimes we don't have to do as much as we think we do. Um, I think I found that just being able to be there to listen and to be a friend is a lot more helpful than anything I'm going to say. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that I try to avoid is like pitting people um, just because a lot of my friends that, you know, are DACA recipients. So they have, you know, they've had a much different life than me based off their immigration status. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they went to the same, you know, went to the same school system as me, mm-hmm. you know, are part of the same culture. Like I would not know that they're undocumented if they didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. And so really the best thing I can do is continue to treat them as equals like that rather than making them feel or like feeling sorry for them. Right. Like, yes. And I think we're kind of exploring this idea a little bit right now, more so in our society of talking about the frustrations that people of color have have to deal with. And I think a lot of white people think that if I don't talk about it, it doesn't exist or the other side of the coin, I'm being polite by not talking about your experiences. Do you have any advice to that? Because you sound like such a wise sage in such a young body. Um, I would like to know what your experiences taught you. Yeah, I do have a few thoughts on that actually. So, you know, I think there's different contexts and situations or there's different, I guess, ways that we should respond and react based off the context and situations, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that I definitely want to start up with is the perception that people that are protesting or demonstrating are angry. Um, You know, when I was, you know, I think before I got into this line of work, I didn't quite understand why people would like protest or be so mad about things. And I think that's often something I see with other white people too, is wondering like, what's going on? Um, And so I, I don't know, I want people to know that that comes from like a passion and comes from the fact that in my, my experience, I know a lot of people that grew up um, really like believing that this country was a land of liberty and opportunity. Right. And then once they ran into experiences where they realized that they were treated differently because of their skin color or because of their, their documentation status, um, that the walls really came kind of crumbling down of this society that they envisioned. Mm-hmm. And so this frustration now isn't like a, an anger of like wanting to tear down the country, but a like anger that like a righteous anger, right? Like knowing we can do better than this. Like we are a society that can be inclusive of all and can be equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think really that like passion comes from this like vision of something beautiful, right? That's a great way to put it. You know, I've really learned to like with my friends that are undocumented or have DACA to not take anything personally. So I know they have experiences that I'm never going to understand. Right. And so Mm -hmm. if I can be there to listen and to learn from them, Mm -hmm. um, that is such a beautiful thing. And so, you know, 
if people and my friends are going to talk and share their experiences, I'm going to shut up and listen. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at the same time, I do ask a lot of questions. Um, but I think sometimes we also need to know that like, it's not always appropriate for us to ask, you know, really personal questions because mm-hmm. people of color and immigrants have often been trying to explain themselves and their existence and it can, can be exhausting. Right. Yes. And, all the trauma that you've gone through, whether yes. it's your immigration journey or just living without status here, you know, they're not, people aren't going to want to talk about it all the time. We have to be very respectful in what we ask and how we ask it. Yeah, it's a very sensitive situation and knowing when to lean in, when to ask, when to just be there, when to be a shoulder to lean on, there's not a right answer, is there? It's per person. It's based on each person's life and their situation. Yeah. And we're going to make mistakes, right? As, For sure. As allies, because every person's different, right? Every friend is going to want a different way of being treated. And mm-hmm. I think it's just don't get too down on yourself and make mistakes, but learn from it and keep going. Does CERC have strong community support? Yeah. So there are definitely other organizations that um, are not members of CERC, but that we collaborate with. So we do have support in that way. Good. Um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of people just in the community that like the work we do or are interested. It doesn't mean that we don't have people that are opposed to what we do, but um, I think anyone who's up to something good is going to have that opposition too. Isn't that the truth? That was a perfect lead into the next question. What are the hurdles that CERC faces? Obviously the opposition people who have negative opinions about immigrants, correct? Absolutely. It's a great question. And I think if you asked any of my coworkers, they would all probably give you a different answer too on what some of our hurdles are. Mm-hmm. So I think one, one that I would highlight, like not only do we, are we battling people that are opposed to us or, you know, aren't in favor of immigrants, but I think there's this constant tension in some ways, like talk about the things that politicians want to talk about and also to compromise on our values. Mm-hmm. So I think we often find ourselves like going into the conversation as it already is, like trying to prove how immigrants are um, beneficial to our economy and how they're such an economic asset. And while that is true and while we'll continue to make those arguments, I also think that is so just dehumanizing. Like That's a good word for it. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. As someone who's I don't know, people throughout history have migrated, right? I just think I've personally like gained so much. My life is so much richer because of all the immigrants in my life. Mm-hmm. And just like we talked about like me being a shy kid in Mexico and like having to adapt to become more extroverted and um, be more like close knit with people. Like that's something that I think everyday immigrants bring to my life. So anyways, yeah, I think we have this, this tension of, I guess, needing to tell the whole story of why immigrants matter. And not just talking about like the economics and and the, another piece is um, we don't want our country just to accept the immigrants that are seen as successful, right? So true. But what about like the people too that like a criminal conviction, or what about the people who are poor or are you know working class or don't speak English? Like we want something that works for everyone and not just mm-hmm. for those that are. Mm-hmm. Seen as good. I can see how that would be damaging to a psyche, would not be what people want to hear, just 
can you just accept me as a person? What if I didn't contribute financially? What if I'm just a stay-at-home mom who helps raise good kids? I'm not contributing financially, but I am contributing to the culture. I'm contributing these beautiful humans as friends and helpers and volunteers. Like we can't count that, can we? Yeah. And and that brings up an interesting point too, is that like immigrants are expected to contribute to our society without getting any of the benefits of things like unemployment or health insurance or um, stimulus reimbursement checks during a global pandemic. For instance, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're huge. They're essential workers, many of them. Yeah, so we, you know, we force people to come up with their own solutions of how to survive and keep moving forward in really trying circumstances. Mm-hmm. When I, you know, I'm not an economic expert, but I would imagine that if our government and society decided to give immigrants and undocumented immigrants the same benefits that the rest of us citizens get, that it would you know, actually pay it forward and be an investment. Isn't that the truth? Well, they're required to pay taxes. A lot of people don't think that. They're not realized. They think that you just, they just come and take all the welfare from the state or the country. Um, but many people are under the illusion they do not pay taxes. And even though many people might not have social security numbers, they still pay their taxes. Like you were saying, we do not want to make per a person just a number or just an asset or just a financial contributor. It's a person. Yeah. You know, I, I think our society too, just, we kind of, exp- you hear this argument all the time, right? That immigrants are willing to work jobs that many citizens aren't. And that's why they're working a lot of low paying jobs, working in the fields, um, mm-hmm. doing janitorial work, cleaning hotels, you name it, mm-hmm. doing construction you know, while that's true, like, I fear that if we rely too heavily on that argument, that will eventually, you know, give some pathway to citizenship or some kind of relief for immigrants, but mm-hmm. keep them trapped in this it labor is, system that takes advantage of them. That is so true. Do you have a story um, or specific person that stands out in your memory uh, that you worked with or a case that you worked on that greatly affected you or the whole entire organization? Yeah, I might have to tell a couple of Please do. Okay. Please do. Okay. I'm ready to listen. Okay, so the first story, the first story is one that I tell often and it's about like how um, the topic of immigration was really made personal to me when I was in Mexico. A couple of weeks into being in central Mexico and working in the shelter, I was um, cleaning up after like lunch one day. So we had this like huge pot that we had made um, five kilograms of rice in. So nice. I was like scrubbing the like burnt rice off of it. And this guy comes up from behind me and in English, he's like, hey man, where are you from? And I was just so caught off guard because everything up to this point was Spanish. Uh-huh. And so I turned around and I was like, oh, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. And before I even like get the words out of my mouth, he started talking about the San Antonio Spurs. Cool. Which was um, so funny. And he's like, yeah, this is going to be a great season. You know, what do you think about our, the recent people that we acquired? And mm-hmm. so we're just like chatting about basketball in central Mexico. Um, How cool is that? Yeah. And so then he, so his name was Franklin or Frankie um, was what everyone called him in the shelter. And so he kind of opened up to me and started telling me some of his story. Um, he had grown up in Honduras and he, his dad had left at a young age um, to work um, like doing farm work in Iowa and was like sending money back to his his mom and he and his younger siblings 
Mm-hmm. And when he was 14, um, some gang violence like broke out near his home and he was like caught in the crossfire. Right. So he had to like duck and cover mm. and he ended up being okay, but it like really rattled him and his family. Um, yeah. So his mom ended up, you know, telling his dad in Iowa about what had happened. And his dad was like, Frankie, like, it's not safe for you to stay in Honduras anymore. Like, you know, because of your age too, like the gangs might try to target you and try to recruit you and force you to work for them. Mm-hmm. So even though Frankie didn't want to, cause it, like all of his family besides his dad and his friends were in Honduras, um, you know, his dad ended up paying for someone to, to take him on the journey through Mexico and get across the border into the U.S. So Frankie came to the U.S. He um, lived in Iowa for a couple of years, went to high school there. And then he eventually um, moved away from his dad's home and he settled down in San Antonio and was working and um, landscaping there. Mm -hmm. He ended up having a couple of kids, um, was living with a woman he loved. And so it's it's just fascinating because we talked about like shopping at the same store, floating in the same river. The part where, um, you know, Frankie's story takes a twist is on July 4th one year, Frankie was um, celebrating this country that he had come to love and come to call home. But he was drinking and he made a bad decision to leave this party after he'd been drinking to go um, buy more alcohol for the group. Mm -hmm. And he was pulled over and ended up getting a DUI. He served time in jail and then immediately afterwards he was deported. Back to Honduras. Yeah. Very so not safe. Exactly. And away from his two small children. And so, you know, when I when I met Frankie, it had been a year since his deportation. And he had been in Honduras trying to save up, trying to scrap together some money. And, you know, he would talk to his son on the phone, like coach him through his homework, tell him he loved him, but obviously it wasn't the same as being there to hold him and to mm. father him. So Frankie knew that the journey back to the U S was going to be really difficult, but his love for family, um, you know, fueled him to keep going and to make this journey. I guess something just hit me cause I knew that Frankie like very well could have been my next door neighbor. Yeah. And just because of where he was born, he was treated so vastly different. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that if I had gotten a DUI, yeah, it would, it would be terrible, but I wouldn't be deported. I wouldn't be separated from my family. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I think, Meeting Frankie, I guess, made me really think about like, what is grace? And this idea that even when someone makes a mistake, that they deserve forgiveness and deserve another opportunity and deserve transformation. And, you know, Frankie knows he made a mistake. And I think, you know, I sincerely believe that he's committed to never doing that again. And Mm -hmm. I just, I don't think he should have faced those harsh consequences. So we get grace and others don't. And it's hard to see that contradiction, isn't it? That disparity. Exactly. Mm. He seems to have really made an impact in your life. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know what happened to Frankie. Like we didn't stay in contact after that, but. Oh no, that's gotta be hard. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I carry a part of him with me. Right. And I, it makes it a lot easier to relate to other people in similar circumstances. For sure. So I guess th- another story is um, there, I won't use her real name, but a woman that I met in the last couple of years in Denver, her name was Antonia. She had left El Salvador with her nine-year-old daughter and they had you know, received death threats in El Salvador. And a few years back, one of her siblings had been killed. She ended up you know, crossing the border, 
um, and then was picked up by an ICE agent and was detained briefly and then was eventually released. But she had siblings in the U.S. but couldn't really remember their addresses and where they lived, but she had a mm -hmm. friend in Denver. Mm -hmm. So she ended up just sharing that address and that's where she was sent to. And so mm -hmm. she was living with a friend in Denver when I met her. And so I tried to help her navigate some like, you know, trying to get a lawyer and that kind of thing. But it was just crazy to me, like getting to know her and watching these circumstances because mm -hmm. she had just been in the country for a couple of months and the living arrangement with her friend did not work out well. It was just not a safe environment for her daughter. So they ended mm -hmm. up getting their own apartment. You know, she's not like legally allowed to work, but it's somehow supposed to come up with money yeah. for a thousand three hundred dollar rent in Denver. Um, and then she's supposed to come up with the money to pay for a lawyer, which is thousands of dollars within mm -hmm. her first, you know, six months mm -hmm. of being in Denver. And so okay. I went with her um, to court a couple of times and it's probably one of the most just like frustrating experiences of my life being there with, she didn't have a lawyer and the judge, you know, was asking her like, why don't you have a lawyer? And she was like, well, I've called 12 people and oh. they either just cost too much or their, their caseloads are too busy. And that's and the, heartbreaking. And yeah. And the judge was just like, why, you know, how have you not got a lawyer? Like, will you be able to get one by your next court date in two months? And she was just like, I don't know, like I'm trying. And, and then the judge was also asking her, like he was asking her about how she entered the country. And so he asked, um, did you present yourself at the border or did you enter this country illegally? Mm -hmm. And she didn't, you know, I think the simple answer would have been, she could have just said illegalmente or legally. Right. But mm -hmm. she didn't really, I don't think understand the question, right? Like we, I think we have this expectation that people outside the U S understand our laws mm -hmm. and are going to know like, Oh, that's illegal. I, I can't come into the country that way. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's not an alternative for someone like her who's fleeing her life and who mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have wealth and money to get some, some kinds of visas. Mm -hmm. So she just crossed the border looking for safety. Right. And so she didn't, she's like, I don't know. I crossed the border and then there was an agent there. So I guess I presented myself you know, the judge was grilling her and I was like, oh, oh man. no, I don't know. I think that that was really frustrating for me because I'm just the fact that so many people in our country don't get legal representation in the immigration courts. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they don't know the jargon and the nuances and all the little things that seem tiny to us, but that like an immigration judge would pick up on. Tell me the difference between this, because I'm sure a lot of people have a heart to help. What's the difference between rescuing and helping? Yeah, I think we're maybe do instead of doing things for someone else, we're doing things with them. Okay. Right? Yeah, working together with the people that are impacted to find like a common solution. That's an excellent definition of the difference between rescuing and helping. Thank you for giving me that. Yeah. Yeah, one more story, and this one's um, shorter. And this one is, I think, you know, the first two stories kind of share some of my education exposure to this issue. And the third story is about um, someone who's now a friend. His name is Victor. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a DACA recipient and an immigrant rights leader and activist in Denver. Um, and Victor, I went to a, a film screening that like shared the stories of immigrants and refugees in our country. And then there was a panel afterwards. And Victor just talked about how like every election cycle, even though he can't vote, and has never been able to, he will hustle to make sure his friends and people he knows are voting. Awesome. And 
And so in the city and county of Denver, if other people have filled out their ballot, you can take it and drop it off for them. And so he would, you know, go to door to door and be hustling to be like, Hey, like, did you get your ballot in? If not, like, you know, once you have it filled out, can I take it and drop it off for you? And so you can do, you can drop off up to 10 ballots. Right. And so every election cycle, he's trying to get that 10 ballot mark. And I just, just like, Oh my gosh, I did not vote in the first couple of elections as eligible to just because I thought I was, you know, not political. Mm-hmm. And if Victor can't vote and he's hustling like that, I need to be doing more. And there's, you know, I need to be actively engaged in, in this um, system in our society too. What an inspiration. Instead of feeling sorry for himself that he can't engage in the political system, he seems to have empowered those who can. Beautiful stories. Thank you for sharing those. How can people reach out to you if they want to volunteer or help support the work that you're doing? One, you can email me. My email is josh, J-O-S-H, at coloradoemigrant.org. Or um, you can definitely text or call me. Like, I'm a huge emails, okay, but sometimes I'm bad to respond. Um, And so, yeah, text or call me at 830-832-4330. And I'd love to, like, talk and learn more about you and kind of figure out what might be a good space for you to plug into this work. And that can hold true for people who would like to volunteer or for people who might need help, correct? Immigrants needing some direction or some advocacy, they can reach out to you as well. Absolutely. And I'm not going to have all the answers, but hopefully I can, you know, refer you to other people that might, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Fantastic. And you are bilingual, right? Yeah. English and Spanish. All right. You made it to the end. We only have three questions for closing. What is your best tip for making the world a better place, Josh? I think one is that you can't do it all, but you can do, you know, one thing or some things, you know, really well. I think sometimes I feel overwhelmed at how much need there is in the world. And so just start like with something close to you or Mm. someone, you know, close to you, even if it's as small as making someone laugh or putting a smile on their face. Beautiful advice. One-to-one relationships, right? Yeah. Yeah. One, one tip I would have for just making the world, maybe I think this goes along with the question of one tip for making the world a better place is okay. um, Be be curious, keep educating yourself about the world around you and ask a lot of questions. Um, you know, I think that we shouldn't ever assume that something is the way it is for a good reason. And I think I also spent, you know, I thought for a long time that politicians probably knew more than me and were smarter and thus like, you know, I didn't really need to get involved, but I have not found that to be the case all the time. I found, you know, like politicians are just normal people like us and mm-hmm. we need to be asking the same questions and really reflecting on why is the world like it is and how can we make it better? I mean, where did you come up with this wisdom? Man, I'm loving this. You have so much to share. You have such an important voice that needs to be heard and a millennial voice at that. I, that's so important. I love that this generation is finding their voice and they're finding how important it is to uplift others. I think a lot of people in your generation are doing that and I'm very thankful for that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Corey. What are you most thankful for? I think just relationships and the opportunity to grow in this life and just 
whether it's talking to you or reflecting on all these people that I've met mm-hmm. over the past um, five years that have made such an impact on me. Mm-hmm. I just feel, feel so thankful that I've had these experiences. I love witnessing your evolution of growth, how you went from your middle school years to now and the process that grew you to this point. Thank you for sharing that. That is a beautiful thing to witness in people. And it's necessary. You shouldn't be the same person you were 10 years ago or five years ago. You should be growing. And I love that you're thankful for that. And the last one, what is your favorite quote? Yeah, so I don't necessarily have like just one favorite quote, but there is, I guess, one quote that sticks with me. Um, and it's Luke twelve forty eight. So it comes from the Bible. And I may not have the words exactly right, but basically to him who is given much, um, much is required. And it's this, I think, so when I was confirmed in ninth grade, um, that quote was like given to me and it's just always stuck with me because I've always felt like I'm very blessed and mm-hmm. I just hope that I can do something no matter how small it is to like get back. You take that seriously. You're just making this world a better place one person at a time. And I really appreciate that. And I love that that was your drive behind it. Well done. Yeah. Thank you, Corey. Thank you so much for taking your time to explain what the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition does and to tell us your story and why immigrants matter and why they matter to you. I really appreciate that, Josh. Thank you so much, too, for Mm -hmm. this interview today. Like, I found this a really uplifting and um, fun experience, so I'm really glad. It always intrigues me how people come to do the work they end up devoting their lives to. Josh's story is so compelling. I just love how random chance relationships and encounters in his young adult life gradually build his understanding and awareness of immigration and the hardships that it entails. I appreciate how he chose to channel that newfound awareness into dedicating his life to the cause of empowerment and advocating for immigrants. Thank you, Josh. If you would like to take a deeper dive into learning more about some of the Colorado state laws that CERC has helped pass and repeal, please check out their website at coloradoimmigrant.org. I love it when people come together to help each other. CERC is a beautiful example of what can happen when people of like minds join together to promote the dignity of all human beings. That, of course, reminds me of something Nelson Mandela once said. Our human compassion binds us to one another, not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learned how to turn our common suffering into hope for the future. When we work towards a common cause, we help ease one another's burdens. We show love across the divide and accomplish way more than we can alone. Thank you, Cirque. May you have many more years and many more hands helping you achieve your beautiful vision. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.